This is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. On paper, people who get terrible news and have to go through impossible things are supposed to become grumpy and jaded. This seems especially true if those people are young and creative, rising stars with endless potential. When those lives are undermined by fate, we all get upset. It seems so wrong. But when Amit Gupta was told by his doctor that he was very sick and would likely die soon, he went in a different direction, and the whole world got better because of it. If you don't know Amit, here are a couple talking points. First, Amit was Seth Godin's first intern. He introduced me to Seth. He also almost died on the job. Amit largely invented the idea of co-working. No kidding. He also created the coolest photography store on the internet before he sold it in 2014. Now he's a science fiction writer, not to mention co-founder of PseudoWrite, which is literal AI for writers. But none of these accolades are why I like Amit so much. No, he's one of my favorite humans because he's an optimist when he was supposed to be a cynic. Amit Gupta is a modern-day superhero to me. And in a few short minutes from now, he may just become one for you, too. Amit Gupta, welcome to Converge. Hey, Dane. Nice to be here. We've been friends for a long, long time, and certainly colleagues. And one of the things that you have inspired in me as I've watched your career over all these years from tech startup land to creating and running Photo Jojo to selling Photo Jojo to going through all of your personal and crazy stuff to I think you were Seth Godin's first intern a million years ago and you invented co-working <laughs> through Jelly and like all the different projects you've been a part of and the most recent one we'll talk about extensively today but through it all you have consistently been on kind of a front edge almost like an edge that from my seat looking at it feels almost otherworldly. And I, I'm not trying to flatter when I say that. It's more like you just seem to be on the front edge of a lot of where the world is going way before the rest of the world knows we're going there. And I'm wondering two things, if we could start. One, could you share with a little color your journey up until now for folks who have not had a chance to meet you yet? And then second, could you talk about how that journey has contributed to this perspective? Because I know that I know, I'm not the only one who's observed this of you. Like not good, bad, right, wrong, just you seem to be on the front edge of a lot of cultural phenomenon. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how your history has set you up to see things that other people might not see quite yet. So I, I think I've been interested in technology for a long time. I think it's been a passion since I was a kid, really. And back then, I don't think I saw it as a business. I just saw it as this fun thing, to a fun playground. I think that's kind of been my attitude throughout my career. When I was in college, I learned HTML because the cute girl upstairs was into building websites, and I was like, oh, this is something I should learn. <laughs> uh, and then I started to build you know, websites for the various groups and departments and stuff at, on the college campus, and that turned into my first startup, which also seemed like just a fun thing to do because at the time the the first internet boom was happening and everyone was inventing all these new things and I wanted to to invent new things. So I just started playing with HTML, playing with websites. And then even working after uh, graduation, I, I mean, I took a couple of years off to build that first startup and then eventually went back to school. 
And I had been reading Seth's stuff, Seth Godin's stuff, and applied for an internship with him on a whim just because I wanted to like learn more from him. And even that felt like play. It never felt like work. And I'd say everything I've done since then, whether it's been like, you know, occasional consulting for companies like Apple and largely like my own stuff, building Photo Jojo, building the Daily Jolt, starting Jelly, organizing these like big unconferences, and even today with Pseudorite, it's all just been finding ways to play and finding ways that work can feel fun. Mm. Well, in the middle of all that fun, you have also had some really significant ups and downs. It's funny, you were the person who introduced me to Seth, and he has been a professional colleague for many years, but has really just been personally generous to me in a way that was I found to be profound. And he saw you as someone that he just cared for you deeply and uh, and cares for you deeply. I think because of that connection, he actually, I, I had an opportunity to go and visit at his place and spend a day in that village by the train station that I, I know you know, because he told me the story about you and the train station. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, could you could you share that story? Uh, sure. So I was his first intern on this project, Change This, and I had helped him hire a few other people for the team and then kind of managed the team with him overseeing the whole thing. The startup was near this train station, so we would, all of us, I think, were living in Manhattan or Brooklyn and taking the train upstate to visit him each day and taking the train back home. And one day, we took this shortcut kind of along the tracks to get to the station, which saved a lot of time. And one day we were taking this shortcut, and it was raining, I don't know exactly what happened, but one of us tumbled down this incline and fell onto the tracks. And we all kind of scurried down to help her. And when we got there, she wasn't responding and her body was kind of trembling. And there was kind of like a, a steam or smoke coming off her. So this is kind of a terrifying situation. And I went to pick her off the track and got shocked and kind of jumped away because uh, it turned out her leg was on top of the third rail, which was sending you know hundreds of volts of electricity through her and oh which was gosh. causing this, this um, smoke to come off. So I'd been kind of thrown back, but I went back again and grabbed her again and kind of wrenched her off more quickly this time. And I don't remember a lot of the details after that, honestly. We got her off, an ambulance came, they took her away. They had to helicopter her to, I think, a burn center or something. Wow. She was fine, but she spent spent kind of quite a bit of time recovering. And then I was in the hospital, I think, overnight for a day or two due to just some internal damage from the electricity shock, but nothing close to what happened to her. Yeah. I mean, traumatic, would to say the least. But I, when I hear stories like that in the midst of you looking at all that you do as a fun playground... There is a an optimism that you have in the middle of because you know you whether you have an extraordinary event like that which would be traumatizing in anyone's life to your own personal journey with illness that you actually leveraged for like I remember when if you could share a little bit about and we won't spend all the time about your <laughs> your troubled moments I promise but it's important context for people to understand that you're not this kind of exclusively privileged person who's gone from success to success you've actually had tremendous challenge and in the midst of that found an optimism in the midst of it. That optimism has been contagious to other people and it seems like it's added to your appreciation and perspective. But, you know, a number of years later, I know you got sick with, well, I'll let you tell the story and I'd love for you to share how that played out. Sure. 
Let's just make this whole episode all, all about my woes. Well, well, well. It's so. It's, I, I knew you wouldn't <laughs> no, like no, it, joking, but but it's, it's actually it's actually there's so many folks with woes at, in life right now, <laughs> and I think if they don't know that there's people who who experience them too, sometimes these stories can actually feel like your successes are extraordinary. But it's in the midst of these challenges that I think is really profound to me. Well, in 2011, I was living in San Francisco, living a pretty charmed life. I had a small company that I had bootstrapped with no outside investment. It was it was building something that I called Photo Jojo that I loved and never intended to sell. This wasn't kind of your typical Silicon Valley startup. And for a couple of weeks, I was starting to just feel tired and lethargic. And I actually stayed home from work for about a week, which is very unusual for me. Like, uh, unless I'm pretty darn sick, I'm not, not going to the office. And I wasn't getting better. So I went to see a doctor who lived, who like had an office just a few blocks away from me. And he took a blood test and sent me home. And I remember walking back from that blood test and having trouble just walking those three blocks as that tired. And I even looked at this like speed limit sign on the side of the road. And strangely, it was like completely washed out. Like I couldn't see this. I couldn't read the sign. It was just completely blank. And I remember thinking like, oh man, it must be like so bright today. Why? What's going on? Anyway, he calls me the next day and he tells me that I have leukemia and that uh, if I don't get treatment, I'll be dead in about a week and that I need to start like basically immediately. And I got off the phone with him. I called my dad, who's a physician. I packed a bag. My physician had made an appointment at the nearby hospital. So I went there with kind of an overnight bag. And the next morning after just like a night full of being infused with antibiotics, I headed to Connecticut where my folks are. And then the next several months of my life were spent in hospitals in Connecticut and later in Dana-Farber in Boston. And the long and short of it is that I had an acute form of leukemia, a fast-growing form of leukemia that would have wiped me out within a couple of weeks. And the only treatment that had uh, a decent chance of success, about 50-50 odds, was a stem cell donation from a matching donor. Unfortunately, I didn't have a matching donor in the National Bone Marrow Registry. So my odds with just chemo were about 25%. So I went through all the heartache and all the, you know, all the things you go through, all the, or all the stages of grief. And I was still running my company from that hospital bed while I was getting chemo. And I guess the most amazing thing that happened was that all these friends, when they found out what was happening, came to my aid. And several of them even took time off work for the next few months to run this enormous campaign mm -hmm. to help me find a stem cell donor. And that resulted in incredible amounts of coverage in social media, hundreds of donor drives being held across the country and across the world, celebrities making PSAs for me, like Chris Pratt and Aziz Ansari, you know, going on CNN with Sanjay Gupta, going on NPR with Seth Godin, all sorts of other stuff to kind of spread awareness about stem cell donations and about how people can help because it's a relatively easy thing you can do to help people. Mm. And all along the way, my doctors were kind of setting my expectations, you know, do this. It's a good thing to do, but it's not going to, it's not going to happen in time for you because we need to start treatment. We need to do the donation. We need to do the next form of chemo in a few months. And even getting a sample from one of these drives to be typed in time for you takes like a month or two. So it's very unlikely you're going to find a donor. The odds of any any person matching are like one in 20,000 or something. But we knew that if we did this, even if it didn't help me, it was putting people into the bone marrow registry that could potentially give stem cells to somebody else. Mm. 
Well, I ended up finding a donor, uh, a perfect match, two actually. Mm. I got the transplant and I spent the next six months to a year basically very, very slowly recovering. Like I was after the, the chemo you get prior to this, I couldn't even like stand and walk very easily. I was kind of working up to like going up a flight of stairs or walking down the hallway. But eventually I got back to normal life and went back to San Francisco. And then I was faced with the question of, you know, now what? What do I do with this life? I have. 50-50 odds of making it through the next five years. And I've just spent the last year of my life kind of going through this incredible physical suffering. Do I just want to step back and sit back in my office chair and go back to how things were? Mm. And the answer? <laughs> answer is no. <laughs> wow. It's funny. As I took my list of the things that I wanted to talk about with you. The older I get, the more I'm convinced that you know, suffering is an inevitability. It's a universal of the human experience. And, but those who suffer and respond to suffering in a way that somehow transcends the suffering is the kind of person that I want to learn from. And I think, it, like you use this phrase when you're talking about your girlfriend and her, her work right now and what she's doing that as a screenwriter, she wants to go to LA potentially because she might grow faster. That strikes me as a, a delightful phrase of like, where, where are you going to go to grow faster? And responding to suffering in a way that is bigger than you is just so much to learn from. And even whether it be in conversation, in person, or from a distance, I, you know, I, I joined the Stem Cell Match because of you. I was one of those hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who was influenced and participated in something that never would have if it wasn't for that that kind of vision beyond just yourself. And it makes sense to me now, in my view, as we turn a corner and talk about your new project with PseudoWrite, why you write science fiction, and in particular, the kind of science fiction that's uncommon. So can you talk a little bit about the, no, you're not going into the office anymore, but now you're writing science fiction, and the type that you write, and how that led to PseudoWrite? Sure. After I decided the answer is no, I spent the next year to year and a half packaging the company and getting it ready to be in someone else's hands basically to sell the company to someone i trusted because i still cared a lot about it and i cared about the people who were working there i just didn't want to spend the rest of my days working on it and after that i think i went out and did all the travel and did all the things that i always wanted to do i had acquired i got a dog i got a motorcycle like i you know learned all these things that i hadn't done before then I thought, what's next? I'm not sure. Um, I started to coach people. Mm. I started to write more, mostly nonfiction. And I eventually found my way to writing science fiction. And the reason I'm doing that is I got into technology because of science fiction. I think a lot of my peers would say the same. They read stuff when they were growing up that inspired them to dream of a more interesting and more creative and more wonderful world that could be brought about by technology. And so many of the things that we have in our world today or you know, will have in the coming years, whether they're uh, smartphones or even telephones in the first place or space travel or self-driving cars, they came to us because somebody imagined them long ago and probably write, wrote about them as fiction mm. in a time when we couldn't really imagine these things actually existing. But slowly but surely, people read those things and they dreamed of creating them, and eventually they did. And the reason I think it's so important to write science fiction, and in particular, optimistic science fiction, is that we can't create what we can't imagine. And the fiction that we're deluged with is so often dystopian. Mm. 
And it really concerns me that if we are just seeing the imaginations of our most creative people being devoted to how terrible a future could be, we're not going to be able to dream of the ways it could be wonderful. Mm. So I want to contribute another voice to that world mm. and try to show some of the ways that we can really improve things through technology. Mm. And the SNP, in my research in advance of today, I can't remember where the interview was. It might have been in New York or somewhere. You talked about how when you were sick, Seth came and gave you, was it Replay? Uh-huh. And anyway, so on that, I went out and bought it and read it. And what a profound Groundhog's Day book that with a, with a lot more to it. <laughs> of you know an individual who this isn't giving anything away if you guys get a chance to read this book this incredible story of uh this individual who who dies uh, in the opening scene and then is is reincarnated as a college kid with all of the knowledge that he had from his previous life and this isn't the only time he dies and he gets to kind of relive his life and the choices he makes along the way and it's brave the directions that this person lives and all the twists and turns but I, you, you talked about how that book, you recommended it, and that was significant for you. And as you face your mortality and as you have you know, lived your life in this fresh way with motorcycles and adventures and, and doing what you're doing, any reflections on how you are choosing to live right now and then how that might be a good thing for others to consider as they're living their one life right now? We'll be right back after this short break. Ty, everyone I talk to wants to have a simple website, but every time I've tried to build a website, simple is like the hardest thing I can imagine. How do you actually make a project that's super complex, a product or service that's super complex, presented on the internet in such a way that the user experiences it as simple? I think the main thing that you have to consider is what that user is really trying to accomplish when they come to the site. So most brands really want to talk about themselves a lot, but they forget that the prospect or the user is there to do something very particular or accomplish something very specific. So a lot of the time it's about distilling your message down and being honest with yourself about how much you really need to say and how much the user is actually looking for from you. What if they're not really clear themselves? Like what if they don't totally know what the user wants to experience or what they're looking to get out of your brand? Because it, it does seem like it's tempting to try to be all things for all people. What you're describing is kind of deciding up front what you want the user to experience. That's right. That's right. So at Cantilever, we have a clear diagnostic process that we use in all of our projects. And that's designed so that we can do all that upfront research so that we can all come to really firm conclusions about what people are actually looking for and what's going to deliver them value. And this is an upfront kind of pre-project, but we find that it actually ultimately saves the client money long term because they know they're only investing in things that their market is actually demanding. And too often website projects just go ahead and nobody yeah, they're guessing. Is, they're they're guessing, guessing, yeah. And people are guessing. And people totally. and you know, we're really smart. We've done lots and lots of different websites, but even we can't just come out of nowhere and tell you exactly what needs to be on your website. That has to be a very deliberate and careful process of figuring that out. And when you do figure that out, what's the impact? What kind of a difference does that make for companies? What it means is that when people see your website, they identify that they are your customer, if they are your customer. And perhaps just as important, if they're not your customer, they understand that too. So if you want to have spend less time doing sales and more time doing work, a great website is a key part in accomplishing that. 
Friends, if you want this for your web presence online, you want folks to show up and know exactly why they're there and what they can get from you, actually just help people discern, is this the right place and are are they your customer? Stop whatever you're doing. Head to cantilever.co. You'll be stoked. Oh, wow. What a great question. And I'm glad you mentioned that book because it's, gosh, it's just my favorite. And I love when people hear about it. Yeah. So I think one of the perspectives that getting leukemia really gave to me was how few of the things I thought mattered really did matter. And like later, what? Like learned, what would be some examples of what you thought would matter well, and didn't? Just such, a, I mean, it's such a small trivial thing, but like when I was sending an email to a bunch of people, like to invite them over for a party or something, I painstakingly go through and like alphabetize each the list of people so nobody felt like they were being thought of last or like you know first or whatever Mm. and that's just it's trivial and small but i feel like my whole life was infused with small acts like this where i was spending a lot of time and attention on things that probably didn't matter to anybody and if they mattered they didn't matter that much so i remember that first email when i sent after getting to the hospital in connecticut I, I wanted to email some friends and coworkers to let them know what was happening. And I didn't alphabetize it. I was just like, hmm. you know, F, F this, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> and it didn't matter. Um, and there's so much, there's so much like that in, in my life and everyone's life. And it's a struggle to remember that too. I mean, I, I had a very visceral connection to, to what mattered and what didn't through this experience. And it's a, it's a daily struggle to remind myself of those things and to, remind myself to cherish and take advantage of the time that I have on this planet because it's limited. Mm. It is for all of us. So what what would you encourage others to consider oh, yes. in that? It's, well, and especially, again, like our audience, these are people who are sold out. They are spending all of their energy making things and trying to make something from what they're making. And like whether it's money or a point or whatever they're trying to do, and they want their life to matter. And like all of us, and like you just pointed out, sometimes we get lost in the everydayness of life, to quote, Walker Percy, like there's a, we've, we're asleep at the wheel. We date, we, we, we sleepwalk. And if you were at a chance to have a sober conversation with a friend that was sleepwalking, what would you want to say to them? Well, I think different things affect different people in various ways. And I feel like anything that's jolted me out of my sleepwalking or my automatic mode has been valuable to me. And leukemia was certainly that for me. But even just reading this book, Replay, Mm. every time I read it, it acts as a reset for me because it reminds me of the universe of possibilities that exists for each of us in this one life. Mm. And it's incredibly inspiring to be reminded of that. It doesn't mean that every time I read it, I change my career, you know, enter a new relationship and, and change everything about my life. But I think it it reminds me of how much agency I really do have in this world and how much power I have to change my existence and and the world that I'm in. Mm. So reading that helps. I think Things like meditation help. I think for some people, psychedelics help. Mm-hmm. It's it's really just like putting myself out there again and again. Sometimes it's just self-development books or going into practices that help me raise my self-awareness, exposing myself to new people that I wouldn't necessarily talk to otherwise. Um, anything that makes me slightly uncomfortable and forces me to face myself is a good thing. Let's talk about pseudo-right for a second. So for those who don't know, PseudoWrite is an artificial intelligence engine-driven tool that helps people actually originate copy, like draft of fictional writing. Uh, that's my understanding. And that's I've, as I played with the tool, that's what I found it to be. But 
it is it is in itself a kind of science fiction <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and it's a very optimistic science fiction. I know that you, because you are both inventing a technology and uh, inviting people to to use it, there are, of course, things that people need to get clarity on what it actually is versus what they make up in their mind that it is. And then also the implications of this new tool that you've created. Uh, some people are afraid of it and some people are embracing it and finding it like incredibly resourceful. Ex- help us uh, illuminate what Pseudorite is. So Pseudorite is a creative writing tool, and it uses AI to basically help keep you in creative flow and help you be more creative. And it came to be when my co-founder James and I started playing with some of the new AI technology that was starting to become available last year. Uh, We both have a past in technology, and we both left Silicon Valley behind or left that tech world behind to pursue science fiction and happened to be in the same writing group. And we were just playing with this new stuff. And as we played with it and kind of showed some of the authors we respect what we were discovering, we realized there was something really interesting here. And in retrospect, it shouldn't be surprising because if you look at the tools that most creatives use, whether it's for like making music or making films or you know any other kind of creative pursuit there's so many software tools that help you realize your creative vision mm. it's really hard to find a musician today that doesn't use the vast array of tools to get the sound that they want mm. and yet as a writer especially a fiction you're really not that far removed from pen and paper or typewriter you're you're using word and maybe it's got spell check but other than that you're you're on your own mm. And the power of computation, the power of modern compute hasn't really come to the art or craft of writing. And so, and you know this with photography as mm-hmm, well, Dane. Mm-hmm. I mean, there isn't a photographer alive that doesn't that doesn't edit photos and doesn't use digital photography unless they've, you know, specifically made a career out of using film and not not using these tools. The yeah. lion's share people do. That's right. And it's almost unimaginable to even like do photography today without without digital editing or digital photography. Mm. But that's kind of the state that writing is in. So we were we were looking at this and realized there's this opportunity to apply computation to writing, not to replace writers, just as digital cameras don't replace photographers, but to augment them and to take some of the drudgery out of it and to make it a little bit easier, especially coming from the you know the software and startup world. I think so much of that work is very collaborative, and as a writer, I find the work to be very isolating, and our goal eventually is to create a tool that feels like you've got a writing buddy sitting next to you who's there to bounce ideas off of and there to brainstorm with whenever you want. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's you've succeeded already. Uh, like talk a little bit about uh, the wormhole button in Pseudorite. So you're you're in the you're in the tool and you're you're writing a paragraph of fiction and explain the journey people can go on and how the tool functionally works. Sure. So you've started to write something Pseudorite won't write it for you, but if you've you've started writing something and you're kind of stuck, you can hit this button called Wormhole. And the the idea behind Wormhole is it's as if we go into the multiverse because I love multiple worlds, mm-hmm. uh, and we find you know five alternate versions of Dane, and each of these versions writes what could come next and what you've written so far. So it's five different directions you could go. And we we figure people are going to hit this when they're stuck, when they don't know exactly where to go next, and it's going to spark some ideas. Some of this stuff that comes out, they might actually end up using their writing, but more often than not, they're going to get some ideas that will inspire where they go next with it. So you basically found the tool 
to remove writer's block forever. Like no more excuses. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's complete now. Like it's kind of amazing. Like, and just for context, it is a remarkable tool. I, I was reading some serious writers feedback on the tool. They were, they would put in classics, uh, like the opening of, you know, some classic fictional book and, and then hit the wormhole and see what would come up. And it wouldn't quite be at the same level as, these kind of fant, you know, like these classic writers that we, we see as iconic, but it, they would say like, it's, it's pretty darn close. Like it was getting, it was giving people a draft that they could then engage it almost from a different seat, like as a thinking more editorially than they were as uh, originating drafting. Is that the way to think about it? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that we're always going to need to have a human in the loop to come up with the direction, come up with the ideas, and to imbue these stories with pathos and meaning. But I think a tool like this can help us get out of ruts and help us get to that first draft faster. Mm-hmm. And so many of us have trouble starting, have trouble kind of like getting that first draft done. Um, and that's the biggest hurdle, hurdle for a lot of people. So we think Sudoric can help with that process. Mm. Well, I, I can't help but observe or suggest that in in many ways pseudo-write is kind of a digitization of Amit Gupta, of Super Amit. It feels like it expands perspective and opens up possibility in a writing context and that you're interested in helping people do that in an optimistic way where we can envision future possibility where people couldn't see it before as just a, as a friend, and I, I know I'm sounding like I'm gushing, but I, I honestly, <laughs> I, I really kind of am, Amit. I, I'm so proud to be your friend. I think I've been begging you for this interview for about seven years. And, I, and I'm so glad you said no all that time because you had work to do and we're all the benefactor of it. But I know that there are folks that would, two things, would want to get their hands on this tool and start playing with it and just trying it out, see what it's like. And also would like to, tune in to you. I know you're very active. You mentioned like sometimes I've seen you do things on Twitter where you were like, hey, anybody want want some coaching right now? <laughs> and uh, you'll do it in real time. And you'll, just fun, fun little exercises that you take on. So share with folks how they can tune in to you and how they can get a chance to play with Sudorite. The first one, the second one is easy, sudorite.com. So that's S-U-D-O w-r-i-t-e.com and you can sign up for the beta there and if you tell us that you heard about it on this podcast we'll get you in early nice and as for just my personal network and twitter and everything you can go to my first name last name.com so that's amitgupta.com and i'd be remiss if i also didn't mention that as much as i think sudere is an embodiment of my values and and playfulness it's also james that of my co-founder james yeah Yeah. Uh, and i feel very lucky that he uh, and I share so much optimism in science fiction and share a lot of the same values. So you should also check him out. And now I'm blanking on his website. Hold on. <laughs> He's jamesu.org. So jamesyu.org. Perfect. Thank you. So I'm curious, any thoughts on the future? I mean, how ridiculous of a question is that? <laughs> but I, I know you think about these things and I know you have musings on kind of where we're going. We, we've come out of a extraordinarily challenging global universal experience uh, that's not done. We have with, with COVID and, uh, and, you know, Delta extended and all that stuff. And that we also have this remarkable, at least here in the United States and it's ripple effect around the world with, with political concerns that feel more desperate than 
decades before, at least it existentially feels that way. And so there's a lot to be discouraged by in this world. And yet in this, in the middle of this, you have an optimism, but I, I, I just want to invite you to be as candid as you want to be around what, what you think our alternate possibilities are for where do you see our world going right now? Any, any trends that you're like curious about in particular? And I guess if you don't want to answer any of that, where, what's the future of Pseudorite? Because uh, <laughs> where is that product going and, and how far can it go with the power of things like this AI level computing? Yeah, sure. So I, I mean, I'm happy to share my unsophisticated and biased thoughts about where the future is going. I'd love that. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I've been on the internet since I was a little kid and there's a part of me that's been nostalgic for the early internet in the last several years, uh, internet where it seemed like people were nice and mm. the people who were there were really nerdy and it was just a much smaller, most more tightly knit community of people. And what I'm, I think I'm starting to see today is a slow return to that kind of world, which is which is really exciting for me because I think for the past decade or so, we've been in this world where everyone's online now and the massive online services aggregate all those large audiences into one place. And there's a lot of battling and a lot of vitriol and there's all the terrible things that we've come to associate with social media. But I think in the last just several years, maybe a few years, we've started to see smaller communities emerge, um, whether they're in you know, WhatsApp groups or small Slacks or Discords or whatever, smaller groups of people, basically communities, but not linked by geography, coming together to share with each other. And that gives me a lot of hope because I think that there's a promise for a lot of the magic that happened in the early internet to come back, but not just for the nerdy early adopters this time, but for every sub-community. And that's a world that I really want to see, not just online, but because of the effects and the repercussions it has for people in the in the real world. Mm. And as for what's next for Pseudorate, you know, James and I have been through the startup thing before, and we're doing our best not to fall into the traps of the previous iterations of you know our lives in startup world. So we're going to try to build this company a little bit differently. I think we're not going to try to kill ourselves to to you know achieve hyper growth, but build something that is truly useful for writers. Hopefully, uh, is a you know financially viable product too. So a lot of what we're going to do is going to be driven by what our authors tell us is useful for them and is not useful for them, and what's useful for us individually as writers as well. So there's a lot of stuff in the books. We're working on some new tools that help give people feedback on their work. So give them critique just the way uh, a human friend might give them critique on a piece of writing. I think that's really exciting because um, one thing I noticed coming from, again, the startup world was how slow the feedback cycles are Mm. with writing. On a website, you can throw up an A-B test and know within a matter of hours if the change you made is good or not. And with a photograph, too, you can send it to a friend or send a set of photographs and find out which one is best or what could be better. But with a piece of writing, a chapter, a whole novel, it takes a while. So if we can speed that up a little bit or make it nearly instantaneous, I think that could really shorten the feedback cycles and and make it a lot easier to tell the stories we all want to tell. So I'm excited for that one. Mm. Well, I am excited uh, to share this conversation. Folks, if you're listening in, I really encourage you to check out all the tools that we've shared. And Amit, friend, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this is an absolute highlight for me to to be in this conversation and looking forward to seeing what's coming next. It was really good to catch up, Dane.
This was episode seven, season six of the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge is made possible thanks to cantilever.co and tellmeyourdreams.com. For all our past evergreen episodes with guests like Seth Godin, James Clear, Ann Handley, Ryan Holiday, Jazz Ampafar, Donald Miller, Mike Michalowicz, Sarah Green Carmichael, Brad Montague, Kevin Kelly, Todd Henry, Scott Stratton, Chase Reeves, Gretchen Rubin, Chris Gillibo, Starley Kine, and more, go to convergepodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. See you next time. An Ironic Media Production. Visit us at ironicmedia.com.